the book of Genesis, chapter number six, verses number seven, the Bible declares, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But, somebody shout, but Noah. That's so good. But Noah found favor, KJV says, grace in the eyes of the Lord. Nine declares, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So God saw, verse number 12, how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself, here are the instructions that God gives to Noah, make yourself an ark of cypress wood, room, make rooms in it to coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Let's jump to chapter number seven, verse number four. After, after Noah has completed building the ark, you have seven days left till the flood comes. So the Bible declares seven days from now, God says, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights. And I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all. Somebody shout, he did all. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Father, now in Jesus' name, thank you for this opportunity God, to minister the word of God to the people of God, thank you for this grace moment that you have given us all to hear instructions from you. I pray, God, that the words of my mouth, the very meditations of my heart, that they would be acceptable in your sights. And it is in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody says, amen, 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 amen. So I want to start out by introducing a term to you all that I have grappled with for most of my life. Um, as a business major, as an entrepreneur, as a young Christian, as a, as a go-getter in general, there is a particular term that I have spent most of my life wrestling with, and I want to introduce it to you all today. That term is success. Everybody shout success. Success, when you look it up in any dictionary, there are three basic, basic de definitions you'll, you'll run across. Um, number one, the accomplishment of an aim or a purpose, a goal, the attainment of fame, wealth, or social status, having favorable or desired outcomes. So as I look across this audience, I see not only spiritual people, but I also see very, very, very smart, intellectually uh, um, achieved people. So if I was to ask the question, who wants to be successful, everybody in here pretty much would raise their hand. I don't think there would. My son has this dance that he calls the loser dance. He, he calls the loser dance, and I was debating whether I was going to do it or not. I am not going to do it, but in essence, he'll come to my wife, and he'll kiss her, and when my wife turns her back, he'll put his finger up like this, and he'll go. So that's the loser dance. <laughs> Um, if I was to ask who wants to be a loser, who wants to be a failure, nobody would say, yes, I, I dream of failing, I dream of being a loser. Everybody in here would say, I want to be a success in my business, I want it to be successful in my marriage, I want that to be successful. Relationally, I want to be successful. Ministerially, I want to be considered to be a success. So in my wrestling with this term, with this 
with this idea of what it really means to be success, over the years there are, there are several keys that I have developed that if I'm going to be successful, there's, there's some things that I need to do um, as an individual. One of those things that I grew up with in my household, my dad challenged me with, is just the idea of working hard. Somebody shout, I got to work hard. Yeah, my dad used to challenge me with the idea that nobody's just going to give you something. You, you know, because in this generation, there are too many people that I find with an entitlement spirit. Just because I'm alive, you ought to bless me. Just because I'm black, you ought to bless me. Just because of this, you ought to. The devil is absolutely a liar. There are some things in life you will never attain unless you get up and go and get it. Can somebody say amen to that? So, so one of those keys I've kind of embraced is the fact that you do have to work hard. The Bible declares faith without what, y'all? Works, it is what, y'all? It is dead. And not only should you work hard, but you should study your craft. Somebody shout, you got to study. It was interesting. I was, uh, me and my wife, we were talking about this um, just a couple of days ago. Um, she, she, she was awarded a full scholarship in a master's program years ago um, in mathematics. And she was really excited about the scholarship until she actually got into the program. And what disappointed her in the program is that at, at the undergrad level, math is all about numbers. It's all about crunching numbers. But when you get to the master's level, they don't really talk about crunching numbers. They're teaching you the philosophy and the, the theories behind the theorems, behind the numbers. So as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, as a minister, it's not about what you do in ministry, but it's also the reason why you do it this way and why others have traditionally done, this, done it this way. Somebody shout, you got to study your craft. The third thing that has blessed me in my endeavor to be successful is the idea of mentoring, pairing myself with somebody who's been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and allowing them to pour into me. Hard work, studying your craft, mentoring. Number four, and this is where I'm hanging my hat on this particular point, modeling. Everybody shout modeling. When I speak of modeling, I'm talking about identifying individuals who you deem as successful in their particular area of study, grouping them together and finding the common qualities of those individuals that makes them successful. And so this is what I've done most of my life in certain areas of interest is that I have grouped people in pastoral leadership. I have grouped people in business and I've tried to come, I tried to grab the common thing that all of them have that might lead them to be more successful in their particular endeavor. I've done, done this contemporarily, but I've also done it biblically. I've highlighted biblical characters I've looked at their lives, and the question is, what is it about this particular character that makes them successful? So the character that we're going to deal with today is the man of God we know as Noah. When we get to the book of Genesis, chapter number 6, something is going on. The Bible declares that the imaginations of men's hearts is evil continually. In essence, people wake up wondering what can they do to be wicked today. And it has so upset God that God says that I'm going to wipe out all of humanity. But there is something in particular. It's not that people are evil. There is something that has transpired that has so grieved the heart of God. And we see it in Genesis 6 and 1. The Bible declares when human beings begin to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons, somebody shout the sons of God. 
The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Verse number four declares, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. So here is the first question as we introduce this text is, who in the world are the sons of God? And I want to give you three common interpretations. Number one, the first interpretation that the sons of God, that they are men of honor, that they are kings, that they are rulers, and it is a sin culturally for someone to be a king, to intermingle, to have sexual relations with someone that's considered common. That's one interpretation. The second interpretation is that the sons of God are the descendants of Seth and the, 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 the daughters of men are descendants of Cain. So you have a godly line intermingling, intermingling with a evil line. The Bible declares, be not unequally yoked. So, so people see that this is the sin. But this is the third interpretation and the one I kind of lean towards that the sons of God, that they're not men at all, that they are angels, that they are angelic beings. And it is a sin for an angel to have sexual relationships with the human. This is in direct contradiction to what God told Adam and Eve. God speaks to humanity, male and female, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. But here we see that there are angelic beings that have come down that are having ill legal sexual relationships with humans. Second Peter chapter number two, verses number four speaks to this idea. The Bible declares, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hit. What was the sin? They, they came down and they had these, this illegal relationship with human beings. If he, if he did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. I believe that these are angels um, because of what the New Testament says concerning this particular passage. But I also believe that these are angels because of what they produce. When the angels intermingle with these daughters, they produce a, a, a completely different race known as Nephilims or giants. An evil uh, watch this, an evil man and a good girl can't produce no giant. Come on, somebody. A royal king and a common peasant girl can't produce a Nephilim. But something of another species illegally crossing over and intermingling with something different can produce a total different race of people. I believe that these are angelic beings. And watch the wisdom of what I'm getting ready to say. Verse number six declares the Lord regretted that he made human beings. Why did he regret it? Watch this. If you're taking notes, jot this down. It's not just what the angels did, but it's what humanity allowed. It's not just that the angels betrayed their trust, betrayed God's trust in them 
to manage because the scripture teaches that angels, that they are ministering spirits toward those who are heirs of eternal life. They are guardians. They are protectors. And those who are supposed to have been guarding us have now violated us. It's not just what the angels did, but it's what humanity allowed. And I want to tell you today, even in this dispensation, God is looking at what the devil is doing, but he's saying it's sad because it's not just what the devil is doing, but it's what humanity is allowing. So God says, I'm going to wipe out everything, but the Bible declares, but Noah, somebody shout, but Noah, but Noah finds grace. And this is what God says in Genesis chapter number six, verses number three. Then the Lord says, my spirit will not contend with humans forever. In essence, I'm not going to fight man like this forever. The Bible declares their days will be 120 years. Again, let me give you two common interpretations. The first interpretation of 120 years is the reduction of the lifespan of man during this time. People are living to be 700, 800. Methuselah, he was 969 years. So a common interpretation is that God is saying that I am going to reduce this age that from this point on, no one will live beyond 120 years. Well, if you continue to read, you will see that there are more people that live beyond 120 years. So this is not speaking to the longevity of, of life or livelihood, but the 120 years in this particular text, which is the second interpretation, the one I'm inclined to, is that the 120 years is a grace period between the pronunciation of judgment and when the judgment actually comes. God says, my spirit I ain't gonna, I mean, just, just think about that for a second. If God come to you and say, I ain't going to fight with you forever. It's quiet in this church. Because that's what he says to all of humanity. I ain't going to be fighting with you forever. You have 120 years to get yourself together. So what happens within that time span of 120 years? If we read throughout the rest of the text, Genesis chapter number 6, 7, 8, 9, one of the things that we know and that's clear is in that 120 years, God speaks to a man of God by the name of Noah, and he commands Noah to build an ark. He gives him the dimension. He gives him the size. And 120, you have, Noah, you have 120 years to build this ark to get ready because judgment is, somebody shout, judgment is coming. But it's not until we get to the New Testament that we find out the other activities that are actually transpiring during this 120 period, a grace period. Second Peter chapter number two, verse number four, the Bible declares, God, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare, watch this, the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected, watch this, Noah, what is Noah? What is Noah? A preacher of what, y'all? Of righteousness. Peter calls Noah a heralder. He is a preacher. He, watch this, he is a proclaimer of the gospel. He is the proclaimer of the good news. 
What do you mean, Pastor McGee? What is the gospel? What is the good news of this particular time? It is judgment is coming, condemnation, life is going to end, but there is safety in the ark. Noah has this, oh God, and it's a, it's a, it's a challenging task. It's a very challenging task because at this particular time, rain had never fallen from the heavens. Water would come out of the ground, watch this, to, 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 to saturate the earth, to, 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 to take care of the crops. Water had never fallen from the heavens at this particular time. So Noah is preaching a gospel about something that has never happened in his lifetime. He's saying that there's coming a day that it's going to rain and the rain is going to be so heavy that it's going to literally flood the entire earth. I can understand people not receiving it because it has never happened before. But nevertheless, look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, it's going to rain. It's the same message that we have today that one day Jesus is going to bust the clouds again. I know we hadn't seen it in our lifetime, and I know it's a daunting task. It's a challenging task because oftentimes what we are tempted to do is just preach humanistic messages that encourage people, that build people, that lift people, that tell them that they're okay. But in all actuality, the true gospel is Jesus saves. But what does he save your butt from? Hell. So if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, watch this, a preacher of righteousness. When we go to 1 Peter chapter number 3, verse number 19, the Bible declares, after being made alive, hmm, he went and proclaimed, speaking of Jesus, made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God, this is so good, waited, somebody shall patiently. God says, I am patiently waiting in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. Now catch the wisdom of this particular phrase. God is not waiting on the ark to be built. He's waiting while the ark is being built. What are you waiting on? The scripture goes on to declare, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. God was waiting on the consummation, the finishing of Noah, not just to build the heart ark, but to minister the gospel, to give people an opportunity to be saved. God was waiting on Noah to finish preaching so that every person on planet can have an opportunity to yield to God. <sighs> Pastor McGee, where are you going with this? So today we're beginning a brand new series simply entitled The Failure of Success. Everybody shout The Failure of Success. Um, I want to talk about accomplishing it. How do you, how do you obtain it? How do you measure it? How do you actually define it? Because I, I need y'all to, I need y'all to trip with me just for a moment. I need y'all to trip with me just for a moment. Sister Jamie, Brother Chris, I'm a new barber. I just got my license. And um, I want to come to the chop shop and work. Jamie's shaking her head. <laughs> um, and you guys decide to hire me because you feel sorry for me. Well, it is my pastor. <laughs> Watch this. Brother Chris, in the next 120 weeks, I only cut eight heads. 
would you just kind of let me go by and say, uh, it's all right, pastor? Or would you have a tough conversation with your pastor? You know what, Chris? Forget you. Deacon Chat. I just got my realtor's license, sir. I'm energetic. I'm ready to go. And I need you to train me. You're teaching me and you send me out. I'm, I'm one of your guys in your, in your business. And in the next 120 months, I only sell eight houses. Would you say that, you know, it's all right, Pastor? Everybody has a, you know, starts out a little slow. Or would you have a tough conversation with me? So here is my question. Why won't we have a tough conversation with our boy Noah after 120 years of preaching, only seven people came to the Lord? Eight people, including himself, were saved in the ark. I mean, come on, tri I'm tripping, I'm tripping. I did the math, I did the math. If, if, one, if one soul a week got saved in 120 years, there will be 6,240 people saved. If, 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 he, if he reached one person a month, oh my goodness, 1,440 people would be saved. If he just reached a soul a month, I mean, come on, player, come on now. You, you can be a half a preacher and get somebody saved once a year. I mean, after 52 Sundays, at least one person ought to stumble into salvation. 120 years, could you not at least reach one soul per year so watch the wisdom based on our definition of success, accomplishing, achieving, obtaining, accumulating, we would call Noah a failure. But if we called him a failure, we would be calling him something that the Bible don't call him. Because this is what the Bible has to say about Noah. Genesis chapter number 6, verse number 8. Put it on the screen. The Bible declares that Noah found favor, grace in the eyes of the Lord. Look at verse number 9. Noah was a righteous man, and he walked faithfully with God. So either we're giving Noah a pass on success, or there's a possibility that we as Christians have the wrong definition of success. Jesus gives a parable in Matthew chapter number 25 of this man, this master. He's going on a journey and, journey and he leaves his wealth to three of his servants. One, he gives one talent, another two, another five. On his return, he asks for an accounting of what did the servants do with the money that he left them. You know the story. The one, he did what with his bag of gold? He hid it in the earth. He buried, buried it. But the one with two and the, uh, the other one with five, watch this. They went out and invested, and they got a full return on their investment. The one with two doubled it to four. The one with five doubled it to ten. Now, let's look at it simply from a humanistic uh, uh, point of view. Who would we really call a successful? The one with two, we would say he did good. But the one with, with ten now, we would call him a success. Why? Because, number one, he started with more. He was entrusted with more. Number two, in essence, numerically, he did more. You had five, you doubled it to ten. 
But Jesus, in the explanation of the parable, Jesus doesn't call the one with five a success over the one with two. He looks at both of them and he says, good and what, y'all? Faithful servant. Watch this. I want to help you to redefine success. Biblical success is not measured by the accomplishment in your calling, but rather by the faithfulness to your calling. It's not measured by the numbers, the numerics, the forward progression of what you do in your calling. But God sits back and he measures how successful you are based on your level of commitment and your faithfulness to what it is that I have called you to do because there is a possibility Moses, that you could strike stones and everybody applause and say that you are a success in your calling because after striking the stone, water did come out of the stone, but God is looking back and saying, no, you are not successful in your calling. You have failed in your calling, not because water came, didn't come out, but you have failed because you are unfaithful to what I Genesis chapter number 7, verse number 4, the Bible declares, seven days from now I will send rain. Now, this is at the end. This is at the end of the 120 years. You got seven days to show time. So God says, seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. This is why Noah was successful. Because Noah, verse number 5, he did what, y'all? He did what, y'all? <laughs> he did all that the Lord commanded him. So, so rock with me just for a seven, second here, and I'm almost done. So um, th those of you all, everybody knows this. Everybody, anybody that's close to me or know, halfway know me, you know this. I've said it enough, and those who are really close to me, you've seen, seen it. In 2017, 2018, those were grieving years for me. They were grieving years. Loss of sister um, early in 2017, a uh, father diagnosed with cancer. Um, spent the rest of uh, that year and well into 2018 transporting him back and forth. I had two aunts to pass between 2017 and 2018. The year before, late, mid-2016, my grandmother, um, she passed. So those were grieving years for me. When 2019 comes into play, I, I'll never forget looking at my wife, and I told my wife, for the first time in two years, I actually feel like myself. First year, because 2016, 2017, my life was like on cruise control. It was just, it was just, I just pushed the button and I kept going because if, if, I, if I didn't just, just manage and maintain where I was, I probably would have lost it. So I was on cruise control in a lot of areas. So 2019, when it comes, 2019 is a year of reassessing and planning, reassessing and planning. If you've been on cruise control for two years, now you have to ask your yourself the question two years later, where am I? Where do I want to be? What do I need to do to get there? So I'm reassessing my life in 2019. I'm making plans of what I need to do to improve myself personally, improve the ministry, just improve life in general. 
2020 comes into play, and I am super excited January 2020. Why? Because I spent the past year putting in plans or writing down plans of things that I want to accomplish in 2020. And 2020 comes around January. I'm super excited. I'm ready to make something seriously happen. March 2020, pandemic comes, shuts everything down. Fast forward, we're at the end of December 2020, and I am feeling like a complete failure. Why? Because based on the world's definition, I am. Because nothing that I plan to do this year, when I say, Leanna, when I say nothing, nothing that I planned to do the previous year has come to fruition. And I'm in my prayer moment. I'm in my meditation moment. And I'm crying out to God. And I'm talking to God. And, and I'm feeling like a failure. And this is what I do. I don't know if it's good or bad. I'm still kind of playing it out. However I feel about myself, I go ahead and say it and voice it out to just kind of clear the air. Because once it's out there, then I can, in the presence of God, of course. I'm not talking about just in my flesh and just calling myself names. No, I'm not talking about that. But in the presence of God, I tell God how I really feel. So I wanted to say, God, I am a failure. But every time when I get ready to say it, pop. God wouldn't let me call myself a failure. I can understand. I'm your son. I mean, think about that for a second. Greg Jr. comes to me and he says, Dad, I'm a failure. I would stop him right there. No, you're not a failure. You're my son. I don't care what you did. I don't care, I don't care what you did. You're not a failure. You're my boy. I can understand it from that, from that point of view, but it was different because God, God was saying, no, I'm not going to let you call yourself something that I'm not calling you. So, God, you're going to have to help your boy because... If I'm not a failure, you're going to have to tell me what I am and why I am. So when he started taking me back through 2020, and he started showing me my activities in 2020s, you didn't accomplish what you wanted to accomplish, but you remain faithful to what I called you to do. Put that definition back on the screen of biblical success. Biblical success is not measured by the accomplishments in your calling, but rather by faithfulness to your calling. So as I'm moving forward, as I'm moving forward, I'm, I'm trying to make this thing very practical. Um, let's, let's real talk, real talk. So as an entrepreneur, as an entrepreneur, what does success actually look like? Mm. I'm gonna tell you what success looks like. I'm gonna tell you the temptation of success, and then I'm going to give you the benefit of the success. Okay, if I can, if I can remember that, that's not in my notes. I wanna remember that, give you what success practically looks like, give you the temptation of the success, and then I wanna give you the benefit of the success. Here's what success looks like. From a business standpoint, I can't control how many customers buy my product. My wife, we were having a conversation several months ago in preparation for tax season. I didn't, I, tax season is going pretty good for her, but I didn't think it would go well at all just due to different dynamics that were going on. Uh, but I can't, she can't control the number of tax clients that come to her in our other businesses. We can't, we can't determine 
how many people actually going to purchase our products. We can't do that. So if my self-esteem, my, my success esteem, if I could say it like that, is built on the number of customers, there may be times when I go through a depressed coma. Come on, somebody. So, so what should I hinge my success on? Should I hinge my success on, on the people that come through the doors, on the people that purchase products, or should I hinge it on what the Bible teaches that it should be hinged on, my faithfulness to what I'm called to do? So as a business owner, this, this is what success looks like for me. It looks like to faithfully giving fair pricing. It looks like providing excellent customer service. It looks like providing the best quality of product that I can actually have. As a pastor, I can't control who comes through that door. I can't control who watches online. I can't control who gives, none of that. So watch this. For, for the next four weeks, for the next four weeks, if a thousand people join this church online or in person, if a thousand weeks for the, for the next four weeks, watch this, people will be writing me. They will be calling me. Magazines will want to interview me. Other pastors in the city will be calling saying, Pastor McGee, what are you doing? Why would they do that? Because based on their worldly definition of success, they would say that this ministry is a success. But I can't control who comes and how long they stay and if they give and if they serve or if they do anything. So let me give it a biblical definition. The biblical definition of success is not how many people join the church, but here it is. Are you committed to loving the people? Are you committed to teaching the people? Are you committed to praying for the people? Are you committed to encouraging the people as a pastor? That's what success looks like. It's not about the number of people who join. It's about my faithfulness to what God has called me to do as a father. Here is, here is success because, I mean, let's be real. I, I got a great compliment. Two compliments. This was, one was a couple of months ago. Somebody called me about Aisha. They were talking about just how great and how wonderful she is. And they had a nerve to say, she is such the, she is so sweet and nice. And I'm thinking to myself, you ain't met the mean Aisha because she can't be mean. But they were complimenting my daughter. And as a, pro as a father, I was sitting back proud. I talked to my son's coach a couple of weeks ago, and he was complimenting my son on how well-mannered he is on and off the court. That made me feel good as a father. But the reality is, chat, them kids growing. I can't control what they do outside my house. Watch, watch the word. I know what the Bible says. I know what the Bible says. The Bible says, train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they get old, they won't depart. Now, here's the question. When does old come, number one? Number two, the variables between training and old. <laughs> so one, one of the guys, the guy that called about Aisha, he was, he, you know, after he was telling me how well she was doing and how, just, in, just encouraging things. And he said that it's evident that you spent time putting things in her. Now, pause for a second. Because there are some mom, there are some dad somewhere that was just as committed as I was as a parent, but didn't get the results that I'm getting. So are they a failure? Based on the world's definition, they have failed at parents because although they poured something, the product didn't turn out the way that they wanted it to, so they are a failure. But in God's eyes, God is saying it's not about the, come on, let's be real because it's some, it's some, some families, I'm like, I don't know how you turned out this good kid when I see your family. Your last name, what again? <laughs> 
I'm dead serious. So for that mother, the world might say you're a failure because your child didn't turn out the way you wanted to, but God says you are a success because you were committed to teaching, training, loving, encouraging, and most important for me as a father, I made a commitment to apologize whenever I was wrong. So if my kids saw me do something wrong or if I disciplined them wrongly, I, I sat down and I, admit, I confessed what your dad did wrong and I apologized and tried to make it right. What does it look like as a husband? So my wife and I, we've been married for 21 years. Somebody give God praise. Um, I plan to be married to her for another 21 years, but the reality is I don't know what Lady McGee going to do. I don't know what she's going to do. All I do know is it's going to be hard to find another. I, I do know that. <laughs> I was talking about me, actually. <laughs> so the world would say it's a success, 21 years being together. But how many marriages have I seen 21, 25, 30 years only for the kids to leave the house and the parents realize the only reason we were together was for them. Now that they're gone, how about we go? Come on. We know that 50% of marriages end in divorce, but out of the 50% that stays committed or stays married, watch the wisdom, the level of marital unsatisfaction is very high in many of those marriages. So if we put two broad categories, we would say there is a divorce category, that 50%, and the other 50%, there is a high percentage of we still together, but we sleep in separate rooms. We still together, but I can't stand you. We still together. I love you, but I don't like you. So what the success actually looks like is not about the result or return, but it's about my commitment to God to love her the way Christ loved the church. I can't determine what my wife is going to do. She can't determine what I'm going to do, but I can determine my faithfulness to God in treating her like the queen that she is. Can somebody say amen to that? <laughs> so there is this, this, what's the word I'm looking for? Hmm. Um, uh, there are these two extreme opposites when it comes to success. Because if you follow the world's definition of success, there is a great temptation to minimize God's level of success. So achieving a lot of clients and a lot of money in business could possibly produce a temptation to fudge on my faithfulness, my taxes, my commitment, my integrity when it comes to faithfulness to God. To achieve the level of success as a parent where my kids are doing what they're supposed to do, it could mean that I fudge on my faithfulness to God and instead of loving them, instead of praying for them, instead of godly disciplining them, I could use fleshly tactics of intimidation to keep them 
looking like a success in the world standard, but actually I'm a failure as a parent. So to keep my wife coming back to me so our marriage looks like a success in the world, I mean that I might be unfaithful to God and from time to time give my wife the cold treatment and make her feel bad about herself so she can come back to me only for us to look like we got it going together. That's the great, that's the great temptation when it comes to success. But here is the reward of true biblical success. Here's the true reward. The world says that when you have these numbers, you're successful. Biblical success says when you have this commitment, then you are successful. So again, the temptation is, what does, how does the world see me? But God, in his wisdom, in his wisdom, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead. I want to preach. When, when, I, when, I, when I was preparing this, Brother Chris, I had like five messages, and I was going to give y'all all five of them today. I'm serious. We was, we was going back to the old EMCCC. You know what we have, you know, I preach for like two hours. But I got them broke out and it's going to be good. I'm excited about it. So let me give you this story because this story, I, I mentioned it and it's not in the rest of the messages. The master comes back. Jesus tells the parable. And he says to the one with two talents. Good and faithful servant. That's success. Somebody shout, that's success. Oh, okay. So you, you're successful in God's eye. But in the world, you're not as successful because on Facebook, if you're a two-talent guy, there will always be a five-talent guy somewhere in the world. This idea of small-town success, it doesn't even exist anymore. Because if you, in a, if you grew up, any, anybody that grew up in a small town, anybody grew up in a small town, a couple of people grew up in a small town, if you wanted to be seen as a success in your small town, all you had to do was find out what other people aren't doing, do that, and become halfway proficient at it, and you'd be successful. So if you're a barber and you want to become a barber, well, it's, it's 10 other barbers, so I can't really just be successful as a barber. So you know what? It's a bunch of barbers, but ain't no hair stores. <laughs> So good and faithful servant. But this is what he says. This is what he says. And this is why people with biblical success are really seen in the world as naturally successful. I'll tell you why. Because they focus on being faithful. And here's what he says. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over little. I'm going to make you ruler over much. I am going to, ooh, can I just prophesy to maybe two people in this place? God is saying today that I am publicly going to reward you over what you privately did. Because nobody saw your commitment when temptation was presented. Nobody saw your commitment when the world was pulling at you. Nobody saw your commitment when the devil was telling you it was okay to compromise. You did it in private. 
I'm getting ready to reward you openly. Come on and put those hands together all over this building. Give God a hand clap of praise. Somebody shout, I love you, Jesus. Somebody shout, I love you, Lord. So I'm done. This is what God is asking you to do. Real simple. God says, you want true success? So what's, what's, really, the idea, what's really the driving motivation behind success? I need you, I'm done, but I need you to hear this. What's the driving motivation behind the success? This is what it is. It's a feeling of self-actualization. It's a feeling of being fulfilled. That's the driving motivation. Because when you look at people who seem to have success, it seems as though that they're the most fulfilled people in the world. So it's easy to spend your life climbing a ladder and get to the end of your life on the last rung and find out there's really nothing up there at all. So God says, if you want the true feeling of self-actualization, it doesn't come in the accumulation of things, but it comes and manifests in a committed, faithful relationship to me. Because in me is joy, in me is peace, in me. It's in him today. So this is what I give to you guys, this challenge. God says, I want you to recommit yourself to me. For somebody in here, it actually might be your first time. Maybe you've heard the story, the passion, Jesus dying for your sins. Wonderful story, wonderful Easter story. But you yourself, you never asked him to actually forgive you of your sins. You've never asked him to be the Lord of your life. And Today is your day. There's somebody in here, you have compromised on your integrity and faithfulness with God because you had the wrong definition of success. You didn't see success as commitment and faithfulness to God. You saw success as the accumulation of things. And God says, I want you to redefine success and recommit yourself to me. Can we do it, y'all? Heads bowed and eyes closed now. Father, now in Jesus' name, I want to thank you for this opportunity. To